about you lately Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, I've been smiling lately Dreaming about the world at one And I believe it could be Someday it's going to come Cause out on the edge of darkness There is a peace train Welcome back. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve O. News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. It's Cat Stevens' Peace Train, which I think is appropriate to introduce our guest. Please join me in welcoming Tim Wilson, who is now special advisor to Seeds of Peace, based here in Maine. But he has played many, many roles as program director and as the person who um, really is associated with Seeds of Peace in terms of the global impact in here in Maine. Welcome to the show, Tim. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Steve. It's great to see you it's again. It's always great to see you. You were here a couple of years ago, and so I want to I want to cover new subjects, but for oh. our listeners that may not be familiar with your background, why don't we just touch upon it, base, mm-hmm. uh, like how you first ended up in Maine, and then, <laughs> I mean, you did, you've done so much from the University of Maine and football coach, and you've done things as special advisor, and uh, to me, I'm fascinated. We could do a five-hour show, but let's <laughs> let's cover the highlights in terms of you know, your 50 years of experience in education, public service, and athletic coaching. Like, Re- really, very simply, I got here in 1960 as a camp counselor when I was in college. Um, and I was, you know, you always get this first stuff. I was one of the first black counselors at a white camp in the East. And that was in 1960. And I remained with that camp was called Camp Powhatan. It is the site where Seeds of Peace is. Wow. So I started out there in 1960 and I went off to, after graduating from college, I went off to Peace Corps. I was in the very beginning of that in Thailand in 1962. Spent three years in Thailand, came back and wound up at camp, and one of the counselors got me to apply to Dexter, Maine, to be the football coach there, and that's where the story started 50 years ago. Wow, and it started through athletics. I mean, your first, right. your, your first connection in terms of job or what your interest was was in football, right? Well, yes, and the reason I was willing to apply was I was I had been teaching in Salisbury, Maryland, in, and that was a segregated at Wicomico County, which is in the on the coast, and um, Salisbury State College is there, but at the time. They had a new school being built called James M. Bennett, and the the uh, Salisbury High School was all black, and they broke it up. In other words, it became the vocational school. It had more doctor's degrees in that school than they had anywhere else wow. on, the, on the eastern eastern part of Maryland. It was a fabulous school, but the you know with segregation integration, at that time they broke the school up and they decided. Well, that I would be going to a place called Nanacoke, which was below there, to be assistant principal and coach track. But the people and in did the, you know anything about track? Or was oh yeah, it, you, I did. I did. Yeah. But but it wasn't one. It wasn't something that I wanted it, to do. Yeah. Nor do I did I want to be a vice principal. I was I love teaching. Right. So the the uh, people in 
the in the city of Salisbury are relatively smaller than Portland. They were upset because they expected me to be the football coach at James and Bennett, but other folks didn't want that to happen because it would have been a truly integrated team. Yeah, so and that was the '60s, right? That would that was 1965. 66. And people, you know, in general, and it's a generalization. I think our our collective uh, perspective on history gets so condensed here in the U.S. But the 1960s wasn't that long ago. I mean, I grew no. up outside of Boston when we went through uh, busing. Yeah, I and and you know. Needham is a western suburb, and I remember vividly uh, the 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 tension. I remember the you know I don't know if they, they would be classified as riots, but there were there were protests, and it was a very turbulent time. And I look back, and you, and you look back. You know, sometimes you need perspective and time to really kind of put things in perspective. But it just seems like it it shouldn't have been. And not even then, but now we're, you know, there's still racial issues that you look at and you go, man, how could this be? We're in 2016, almost 2017, and some of the egregious issues relative to segregation and and whether it's having to do with education or just equal rights or what, what, all of it. But we're still going through challenges now that 50 years from now will also seem bizarre, right? Well, the the thing for me is, you know, putting it in context is that. In 1966, I was the first black teacher at a secondary school in Maine, and it was in Dexter. It wasn't in Portland. It wasn't in Bangor. It wasn't right. in Wilson. And and I taught there, and 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 I was hired to coach football and and be head of uh, phys ed, which is sort of funny because I never took a phys ed class. And there probably there, there weren't any other probably I don't know about residents, but in terms of having a a, a, a black teacher. <laughs> Was it a little bit like to serve with love? Was it was it a little bit Sidney Portier, where, where it's like Mr. Wilson? You know, we we. we I I wouldn't put it that way because, um, first of all, Dexter was every area has some issues, but I guess I fit at the time. I had some wonderful people who mentored me in Dexter, who had, who made it easy for me to understand what Dexter was. So that I didn't fall into the traps, right? And those men and women, and some of them, their children I had in school was very different. So, so I can't say it that way. But, but in you know that first year, I as I said, I was there for phys ed. I didn't take a phys ed course in school since grade school because right. I played three sports. And in those days, they just checked it off. You didn't go to PE. And in college, I was a, a triple major. I had English, history, and science. So the next year, they put me in a classroom, which made me happy. But the, the state, the superintendent there and the state people worked real hard to make sure that they welcomed me, which was sort of odd in a way, but but they truly did. And then Harold Elfont, Dexter Shue was there, and he, he and a guy named Bartolio Siciano, who was a lawyer there, they really went out of their way to make sure that I was going to be okay. Because uh, after the first year, I told my dad, ah, I'm ready to come home. And, you know, we, my, I was married, and I had my, my first wife, and I had a son. Um, hmm. In fact, he's still, he's, you know, he's still here. That's great. Yeah. Did you have direct contact with Harold Alphonse? Because for many people now, his name 
and the foundation that still exists is synonymous with giving across Maine and also the Dexter Shoe Company. Right. But uh, did you have direct? Yes. Uh, what, what was he like? And, and oh. you know, talking about what you were going through, and here he was, a businessman who, who created a, a shoe company that ultimately was worth a tremendous amount of money, and and if anyone talks to Warren Buffett, oh, that's a straight great story. Warren Buffett will say he paid too much because he paid in stock instead of cash. That's right, which led to you know great wealth. But what was Harold Alfont like in your your interactions with him? He was um, he and his wife were just maybe, I mean they they were just unbelievable. I I mean for me, I give you an example. Sure. Um, Dexter had a, a field that we do a general field that we played on, and after the second year, we had had a we had a kid hurt his knee because the the field was not really, you know, in good shape, and I had a conversation with him. Went to see him about it. He built the field that's now Dexter's football field wow. next to the next to the new high school that was built in '68. He built that field. He and he and Mr. Siciliano, I needed a wrestling mat because we, we you know, I coach wrestling and and they got me the first one, the first Resolite mats. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah. back this we're talking 1968. Wow. He he and one his ex son-in-law and I helped them with the you know the molded sole shoe soccer shoe that Sears had. Oh yeah, that them. came from Dexter Shoe. I didn't know that. And that shoe was designed, and I had a little bit to do with it, and we wore that shoe <laughs> in football. Our football kids, you know, they had different models that our kids wore. He, I mean, the only thing I can weigh in putting it is he was gentle. He listened to the joke that people made years later, I found out, is when they were trying to, when they were interviewing me, the whole school board interviewed me, which is, you know, which is understandable. And later on, there was a discussion a couple of weeks later, and Harold, all Harold asked of the superintendent, when the superintendent asked him about hiring me, since I was a Negro using that term, right. Harold said, I don't care about that. Can he win? <laughs> and that tells you a little bit about him. He, and over the years, yes, I was on the board at Kent's Hill. So we get our contact. And when we started Maine Seeds, he was the funder. He even funded John Wallach in 1993, gave him money when we first started Seeds of Peace. So, you know. Yeah, the funny thing, he's known now as the foundation continues to do great work around the state and helps with funding for newborns around the uh, state. And, you know, I don't know if it's half the athletic fields in Maine, but a a bunch of them have the Alphon either imprint or the name or he helps support it in some way. So uh, athletics, arenas too. Yeah, athletics and kids and child development were all critical to he, Harold Elfman. The biggest thing I found out was it was Maine. I mean, he, he did a couple of things where he had children at different places. Right. But proponents of his money, his, St- his, his, his ideas and things stayed right here in Maine. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And to this day. You know, still yeah. very, the foundation is active, and every year they oh. have a board and they review grants, and they still do so much. That's true. Wow. We have Tim Wilson here. He is uh, 
special advisor to Seeds of Peace, which we'll be talking about in just a second. So after that, how did you end up at the University of Maine? <laughs> because you were there for well, I was 20 there for, years? No, no. No. I was at University of Maine for about 17 months. 17 months? months. A glorious 17 months. months. So how did, how did that happen? Harold Westerman, Jack Butterfield. Uh, Harold, you know, is the illustrious AD, and, right. and and Jack was the baseball coach, as far as I'm concerned, at Maine. Jack had, both Harold and Jack had watched me at Dexter. And then 1972, at the end of this school year, Jack came over to see me at my home in Dexter and said, Harold and President Neville would like you to come and work at Orno. And I said, doing what? They want you to coach. And I said, you must be crazy, Jack. And Jack said, no, I'm serious. So we talked through a month or so. And I talked to the superintendent's name is Mr. Hose Apple and told him what was going on because there was a handshake between us that I would not coach at any other high school in Maine, but I could go on to college. Right. Okay. So in August, I took the job at UMO as the freshman football coach with the intention that I also would become the wrestling coach too and lectured in history and things that, and, and other things too. And so it was an interesting time. I was there actually till November of six of 73. So that gives you the time frames I'm talking right. about. Um, the, my claim to fame was that I really had a wonderful time with Walt Abbott and 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 Stump Merrill. They, those are the guys I was around. Sure. They, and Stumpy was just Stumpy. Stumpy was so much fun for me. I used to play racquetball with. Not really. Ra- I, 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 I. Yeah, playing racquetball with those guys is like playing in a blood pool because you're getting <laughs> beat up. But. But I had a great time, but my claim to fame is Jack Cosgrove was my quarterback. And Jack and I have been friends for years, his family and everything. Else. And I recruited him, and I there's a whole ch- bunch of other stories about how he got there. But Jack was I'm on the Maine Sports Hall of Fame, and we yeah. inducted him two or three years ago yeah. into the Hall of Fame. And, uh, yeah, he's left. he has a legacy here in Maine. Oh, he's unbelievable. He, he, I mean, seriously, I remember him coming on campus and, and his mom and his dad and it. It was even to this day we still laugh about how that how that occurred. And then from there, you, you had uh, an illustrious career ser- serving in. Uh, you've had so many different careers, right. but you were appointed by three different governors to different posts. That's right, uh, chair of Maine Human Rights Commission, That's state Kate Curtis, ombudsman, uh, and then the associate commissioner of programming for the Department of Mental Health, Mental Retardation Corrections. That's right. And so how did you make the leap from high school to college to academics to coaching to being involved with state government? Um, I think it comes from my parents and the school that I attended, which was Slippery Rock, then Slippery Rock College, which became the university. I had the opportunity to have great teachers and mentors in college and in high school. And my parents, they pushed me into different things. It's, you know, as you know, when you when you run things, there's certain skills you have, you learn. Right. You know, um, Ken Curtis was a friend. I mean, seriously. He and his family, Angel, his daughter, who passed away, was 
she she ran around with my kids and water skied at Powhatan when they'd come down. I mean, what I'm saying is a Susan Curtis camp. I helped develop that at the very beginning with with Scott Hutchinson, who ran Canal Bank, and Chuck Chinchet. Those guys. I mean, when you when you're around people like that, you're going to learn. So so Ken appointed me to the interim head of of the Human Rights Commission, and I became the chair. But the people that were with me on that commission were older smarter, taught me a whole lot about basic civil rights, human rights stuff. And then I also did some schooling. So I had that under my belt teaching too. And then later on, when Ken Curtis came to get me, I was on the football field in 73. Wow. Raining, muddy, had me come up to President Neville's office. I had my football shoes, I mean, my shoes on, coach's shoes on, mud on the carpet, there's Ken Curtis, Rick Stoffer, Charlie Jacobs, his staff people, and uh, Red Nichols, who later became commissioner of, of public safety. They're sitting in the room, and the governor says, look, I've already talked to the president. I need you to come to work in Augusta. And I said, "What? doing what? And I honest truth, I said, doing what? And he said, I need you to run energy. And I said, I started laughing and he said, no, no, I'm serious. So the next day I drove down and I met, then you met to the executive council. I met with the executive council and there's one of the Chinchette people, uh, uh, Miss Cummings from, uh, from um, Newport. Uh, There's just a group of people who are historically, if you know Maine history, they're unbelievable. So they're sitting there questioning me. That office was then civil defense. That's where they put the energy piece in. I wound up coaching my last game November 7th against Delaware. I was uh, the running back coach. And so we played Delaware. They put me in a a hojo's out in, in Bangor with everybody in the room, teaching me some of the basics that I had to worry about when I walked in the door on Monday morning. How, first of all, I want to cover that, but how do you remember it was November 7th, you were playing Delaware, and you went to Howard Johnson's, where I can't remember what I had for <laughs> breakfast this morning. This is from the 70s, right? Yeah. I, I can't, if, if somebody said to me, what did you have for lunch yesterday? It'll be, I don't know, it was a sandwich. And every time I talk with you, I am I am not only amazed and, and, and humbled by your accomplishments, but your memory for detail November 7th, it was an overcast day. We were playing Delaware. <laughs> it was cold. Too. It was That's... cold. We won by seven points. Mm-hmm. We met at a Howard Jones. So, so, so go on. As you were, as they, as well, they, as... Uh, we got down there. I mean, that morning I had to be there. Uh, we eventually moved from Orono to wow. Augusta, my family. By the time I had three sons. And so I was in Augusta um, and I worked in energy. We ran the allocation program because that's the way we first started. We were the only state in Oregon who actually had set up this when at 73 when the embargo started. I, I remember that because I was 14 and I worked at a gas station. And, <laughs> and folks like Emily, who's much younger, right, Emily? I am. You, you don't remember the embargo and you don't remember 
the gas lines odd in the evens. early 70s, odd evens. I have heard about it, though. It it was the real deal. And not only could you, you know, depending on your license plate, I forget if it's the number that it ended or started with, but depending on your license plate, you could only get gas on Monday or Wednesday or Friday, Friday or Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday, every other day. Yeah. And even with that, I remember at the gas station, people lined up around the block. It was a bizarre time because with the embargo, Nobody knew if that was going to be the new normal right. or if that was just the situational thing with OPEC. But so being involved with energy during the embargo, that in itself is a fascinating part well, of well, history. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's also, for me, was um, – I guess what you can say is I learned about what government really was about even though I taught it. Right. I got a chance to spend time with – some amazing people. Now, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to name that, but seriously, when what? you have Ed Muskie come to your office and sit with you and then say, hey, we got to go up, because we had a flood in December in Maine, and I, they had this headline, Mr. Flood, Mr. Oil, it was me, and, and, you know, Ed just joked about it with me, but we flew up in a, in a helo, from Augusta to go to Fort Kent, and the dam was blocked, and the water was backing up into Fort Kent, and I'm in charge of that. Wow. Okay, so it, it you know Senator Muskie's with me in the plane and the helicopter, and we're talking about it. Here's a guy you know that now be, be, excuse me the sidebar. Yeah. I had been a Shirley Chisholm delegate from Maine to the to the convention, and he, you know he knew that. I mean, he knew why I did that back when. But I was also an independent, so that protected me a little bit. But he used to make jokes about it. Um, but he was an interesting man. But you flip it over, there's Bill Cohen, who's now, he's he's in, he's a representative. You've got Hathaway. I mean, we, we just had some tremendous people, uh, Joe Sewell, Ken McLeod, Senator Barry. When you start talking about the people that were in the legislature, right. it's like who's who. Okay, mm -hmm. Neil Roll, Merle Nelson. Olympia came and took her husband's place after his passing in that car accident. Um, her husband, McKernan. These people were all in the legislature. They were all either representatives or senators. And, and relative to change in Maine, they all played key roles. Oh, that's right. And, and I don't know if today, other than maybe uh, House or state Senate leadership, the average Mainer can name two or three people well, who the, serve in our legislature. Well, the other part of that is, is and it says, you know, for Maine, yeah. a lead, Maine's, you know, it's right there. We did. We, I can remember having a hearing in Portland at the just at the very beginning of Jim Longley's beginning as governor, and Bob Dole and Ed Muskie ran the hearing, wow. and they were talking about the energy stuff. And I was invited to come because I had spoken in D.C. We wrote Maine wrote the weatherization program that is still today. The program that you have today was written here in Maine by a group of people who work for me. And that was 1974. The original program was, that they started out was where they just wrapped plastic around places. was run by then OEO and those things. And the guy's name was Herb Sperry. Well, when, when um, Longley won, 
he kept me on and he put me in that office and the energy office became a larger office. Bob Monks ran that office and Bob's office was next door, actually came downstairs where my office was. And he, we work side by side. That's another name of political and government uh, but he, leadership. He understood stuff about energy that a lot of people will not acknowledge. But his ideas are the ideas they're talking about now. Can you imagine that? Wow. The things he talked about as a Republican who was trying to run for office at different times, he was talking about the stuff that we're talking about now. Well, you're listening to Tad Smart Talk with Steve. We have Tim Wilson here. I, I want to also focus on Seeds of Peace, which is such a special organization. But uh, talk to me a little bit about where the idea for Seeds of Peace, and then explain a little bit the, the mission and the scope of, of Seeds of Peace for our listeners that may not be familiar. Um, it started out with a man named John Wallach, who passed away in 2002, much too young. He was a writer. He worked for Hearst Papers. He had a program on uh, CNN. He was a talk host, you know, hosted a program. And in the first Trade Center issue in March of 1993, where they had the uh, partial bombing in the in, in the, the garage, basement, right? in the garage, he decided he wanted to do something. And there was a dinner party in D.C. And he got the ambassador to Egypt and the ambassador to Israel and the representative of the, of, the, of the PLO or representative of the Palestinians to agree to send 15 kids from each of their countries to an idea he had, a camp or something like that. So was this during the Yasser Arafat era? Yes, or? it was. Yes, it was. And he knew Yasser Arafat. Wow. He knew Ixlak Rabin. He knew the players. So he goes back and he writes in his column <laughs> that these guys have agreed to so nobody could back out. Um, I happened to be in Maine in 1993. I had been back in Pittsburgh where I grew up because my mother was in her 90s and my sister, and they both were ill, and I went home to back and forth to take care of them. And I, my son, my oldest son, told me that the owner of the camp, remember in 1960, right. They were running into some problems, and he said, Dad, you got to go back and help him. So I came back up that summer to help him at camp, to help Joel Bloom. This is his name, Dr. Joel Bloom. In the middle of the camp season, because it's eight weeks, a lady appears. Her name is Bobby Goschuk, G-O-T-T-S-C-H-A-L-K. Bobby called John and said, we need to have Tim run the camp that we want to put together. Because they had talked to Joel about having camp for a couple of weeks at the end of the session when we were finished. We finished, do eight weeks, we're finished in mid, mid-August. mid But whose idea was for it to be camp? Because I get the idea of getting different cultures to come together. But to me, one of the fascinating things His is son. doing it as a camp has has its own, uh, it becomes a catalyst for, for involving nature, the setting at the you, you invited me son. up a few years ago. It, it your defenses go down when you're outside in nature, when you're by a lake, when when you're having these yes. camp experiences. If it was done in a building or a hotel we, ballroom, no, it doesn't work like doesn't that. Doesn't work like that. Um, John's son Michael had been a camper in the eighties, 
And Michael told his dad this would be a good idea. John went to Joel. That's how it was created. Wow. Joel was older. Joel was then in his late 70s. Joel then and Bobby then asked me would I stay because I was also doing stuff in Pittsburgh at the time. I was dealing with all the gang stuff that was there. That's one of the reasons I would go back and forth because I was involved with the school system down there. And I was also coaching on the side a little bit. I coached Curtis Martin and wow. Ray Zellers and in football camp. So I had, a, you know what I'm saying? I just had, I was having a good time. Right. They asked me, I said, well, my mom's sick. I don't know whether that's going to go or not. So she wound up saying no. She said, you stay up there and do that. Your dad would really like it if you, he'd passed away years ago, but it fit his kind of thing. So I stayed. It's 25 years old. This will be the 25th year this summer. Um, 6,000 kids have gone through. Over 500 main kids have been involved with it over the years. The only way I can put it is this. It started out uh, with the intent of, as John said, putting in a face on your enemy, being in a room and having a conversation with somebody you didn't know other than they were bad. Right. The progression now is huge. Um, uh, John passed away in 2002. There was a succession of people who became the executive directors or chair. Um, I did, I was never that. I was just someone who ran the program and ran camp up until 2006 and then wound up retiring. The person who took my place, I had trained her, and she's now the executive director and camp director. Her name is Leslie L- Lewin. Um, her her uh, Adelson is her her maiden name, but her father's a big time, you know, resident, uh, lawyer down in Boston. But Leslie has been in charge of that since about 2008, nine, right around. And then the, the, the stretch where they're in now is, is creating adult programming with kids who are now 33, 34, 35 and continuing contact. As you know, Pius Alley, who, is now the city councilor. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I think, he, or last week, took the oath after That's right, being I was elected. There. Yeah, I was there for that. Wow. Was he a seed? He was a facilitator. Wow. He came to work for me uh, for facilitation for the main group in 2007. So I've known him almost 10 years. He's an exceptional human being. He's from Ghana, and he's done some wonderful stuff. And that's an example of an adult. Well, he just got a fellowship. He just came back from London, and he was there with with seeds package. A lot of people, you know, right. put their ideas in, and they were invited to London. He was one of those people. Yeah. And, and he was a political newcomer this year. That's right. And uh, I, I think he unseated an incumbent. And... From everything I've read, I've never I've never met him personally, but everyone who he met or, or saw his campaign felt that he was a compelling presence. And, well, and he, that's he just, one you need to meet. He, yeah, he, I, I need to meet him. He, I, I want to meet him. He's a, he's a phenomenal human being. That that goes to the next part about the difference between Maine and talking about the mothership. When you talk about the Middle East. You're talking about 
25 years of work. People always ask, do you think you're doing anything in the Middle East? Well, I'll give you a quick example. Sure. Saab Atikot, who was the chief negotiator, he was right-hand man of Yasser Arafat. When, when my wife and I were out in, in the Middle East, and I say this not to sound, you know, blow smoke or whatever, Yasser Arafat really liked my wife. He just thought she's the greatest thing since sliced bread because he would send the kids to camp and he would hear stories about her cooking because she ran my food service. We were over there and every, you know, during Ramadan, we would get invited for iftar dinner. We would go to the Makata. My wife and I are the last two foreigners to have iftar dinner with Yasser Arafat before mm. he passed away in 2004. But Saab Erekat's kids, his boys, were educated in Maine and went on to Manhattanville College. That's fascinating. And, and the oldest boy is now head of development for Jericho. Now, he had two twin daughters. Dalal was a seed. She has her Ph.D. from the Sorbonne. She teaches at Brazette. Okay, And now her teaching and her friends from Israel, Israeli side, they, they talk to each other. They communicate each other around education and the things that need to be changed to make their world better. At the same time, her twin sister is one of the, she's unbelievable eye surgeon. Salim is unreal. She didn't come to see, but she became a part of my family and other folks because she was at, she came to New York and she spent time in New York going through some different kinds of, you know, educational pieces for her, for her ability in surgery. But that's, that's the way it works. The networking that the kids have are, is unbelievable. And it, and it, the young lady who's the great granddaughter of Raymond Fogler just left. Her name is Strout, Catherine Strout. She was a seed, a main seed. She goes to Bates. She's she's now in the hierarchy of camp. She left to go to Palestine and Israel to see some of the counselors and some of the people that she made friends with in camp. We're talking 2007. She's meeting people from back in 94 and 95. Wow. And, and it's, it's a continuum. It's with the hope that some of them become leaders, not only in Palestine and Israel, but also in this country. And also to take their experience and their insights back, whether it's their parents or grandparents, because the the one of the most destructive elements, I think, in human nature is ignorance and fear. Uh-huh. And if you can show somebody that people from different religions, races can communicate and have common empathy or areas mm-hmm. where they're concerned, then it, it uh, to me that's fascinating. But for folks listening, we yeah. have Tim Wilson here. You know, in the website for Seeds of Peace is seedsofpeace.org. You know, it's eight weeks, but specifically talk about how seeds are selected. The international part of Seeds of Peace, Israel-Palestine, um, you have the Indo-Pak group, which is, Indo, you know, uh, Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan. And then you, you that's South Asia, that, that's what we call that. So it's South Asia... And then you have the Middle East. Well, then you have a domestic side now where it's Maine, Syracuse. And last year they added to the Syracuse piece 
Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles. They're trying to take what we do in Maine and put together the same ideas for those for those areas that are running into all kinds of issues. Now, what's the commonality? It's dialogue. It's actually the best way of putting it is kids from Israel and those other places are chosen by their governments and they come to camp that way. The domestic side, our side, kids are chosen by we're a school based program. So I have kids I have seventeen schools in Maine that choose kids to come to camp and they go through the same process as the Middle East. It's apropos because our state is it's its dynamics are changing. And so you have kids from Dexter sitting next to kids from Portland who may have come from Iraq or whatever. They don't have that in their community. But on the other, also on the other side of that, you have those kids talking about their fears, their issues as it relates to the beginning of the conversation. You're a Muslim. Same time, the other kid says, well, you're, you're this from Dexter. You hate me because of this. When you when you have dialogue, we we center this around these three things: communication, trust, and respect. I didn't say I liked you. I didn't, you know, no kumbaya. It's basically those three things. You draw a stool, you have three legs. If you don't take care of those three, and one of them isn't working, the stool falls over. Then people ask me, "What about the seat? The seat can be anything: your marriage, your job, whatever. It's a way of." giving you some boundaries to work on when you're in having communications with people. Now, you put a group of people in a room for 90 minutes a day, and they they have conversations with trained facilitators, which we're now lucky because we have so many kids who've graduated from SEEDS who get trained in other things but want to come back and be facilitators they're then given training by a lady named Deb Bicknell, who's a consultant. These are the dialogue sessions, right? These are right? Our dialogue And that's sessions. the key curriculum. That's the key piece. And the same thing happens for the, you know, for the international group. They have the same thing. And their facilitators come from Israel, Palestine, India. But they, they, they are trained similarly, in some ways the same. What happens in those dialogue sessions, there's something called community norms. These are created, and they're, they're hung in the, in the cabins where they facilitate. And the biggest thing is a safe space. It's a place, a place where you can talk and know and trust that that's where it's going to stay. You know, you don't go in and sit down and visit and listen to the conversation. It's these kids sitting and having a conversation, a difficult conversation. The first Let's say the first three or four times they meet, we call it difficult conversations. Then farther along, it becomes dialogue because they're beginning to trust and they're able to continue the dialogue. With Maine's program now, we continue the dialogue even after camp with what we call all-camp dialogue. The kids get together, whether it's at Portland Public Library or we were up at Coney in, in September, but Portland Public Library is where we normally meet, they go through certain issues that they think they need to be talked about. Now, with Maine, we have a youth summit in March. And at that youth summit over the years, we've, we've, we've 
we've discussed some pretty heavy stuff. These kids have been uh, talking about race for a long, and we're not talking about just yesterday. We have kids that put that stuff together for the last five years. Black Lives Matter, three years ago, the kids in Lewiston were talking about it and dealing with it with their superintendent and their school, and the leading person that actually helped do that was a young woman named Muna Muhammad. Muna is now at Tufts. She's also doing stuff at Tufts. And her counterparts, she was on the school board. We have kids on school boards. Wow. So, so what I'm saying, it's a leadership piece, teaches a lot of young people how to become facilitators and work within their schools to have dialogues in their schools where they start freshmen off learning how to communicate, learning how to sit and talk with each other, whether it's around bullying, whether it's around the politics of what's going on today, whether it's a discussion about things they see as problems, dress codes, ELL programs, the curriculum, there's things that a lot of people, adults, don't even understand. Mm -hmm. These kids research, and they come in March with a, a an action solution set. They work on it from September to March. They present it, and they bring people in, adults, to hear what they have to say and have them respond. For example, this year, Dexter is leading the discussion on mental health for young people centered around uh, suicides in young people. They're doing an amazing, I mean, I'm waiting, I'm just, you know, like a little kid in a candy shop. I mean, that's such an important issue. I I recently attended a TEDx event here in Portland, Mm -hmm. and I actually mentioned it in a column uh, a few weeks ago. And this young girl gave a presentation. She's from Greeley, I bet. Um, this particular girl, I believe she was from Portland, but she had two close friends who committed that's, suicide. That's, she was out of Waynefleet. Yes. Okay. And so she had two close friends commit suicide, and she herself was struggling. And, and I'm not revealing anything no. that she hasn't spoken about publicly, but she had some mental health issues. And she stood on a stage at the State Theater a few weeks ago, looked out among hundreds of people and gave, and gave a, an unbelievable, powerful presentation right. saying, this is what I've gone through. I'm standing here, and it was so brave. I mean, I've been to a lot of presentations of different types, business, political, and people who are very skilled and experienced, but for this young girl, I believe is 16 or 17. Yeah. But that issue that you just touched upon uh, requires and demands all the awareness and sensitivity and attention we can give because it's an epidemic. Well, these kids in Dexter are pr- putting that together. They're going to have a seminar uh, at their school, and then they're going to fold it into what we're doing in March. Well, we do the same thing with curriculum. Now the kids are talking about curriculum. They forced the issue on smarter balance that the legislature kicked out. Wow. And, and I mean, what I'm saying is, is that in Maine, yes, we are seeds of peace, but Maine has... It's domestic issues that other places are now looking at and saying, maybe we ought to be doing the same thing. And we've been at this in Maine since 2000. That's when the Indo-PAC group came in. We came in at the same time. I want to cover a couple of things. But for people wanting more information, would it be best to go to seedsofpeace.org? Yeah, and, and go to the website and you can pick up and there's some stuff that's there and they can learn more. You know, going back to the question you asked about how the kids sure. you know, apply. In it, for the domestic program now, 
the what we call the American side, kids are applying already who are going to be the American delegation to the international program, and and also young people from those other cities are beginning to apply for the domestic program. The main side, we don't our kids don't apply until mid January, and there's a reason for that is because we're we have to really we have to go to needs based because we used to just we used to give out so much money for scholarships and now we we have to raise so much more money right because it's the times so i'm in i'm in the midst that's why i was saying to you that what my day my week like was, was i would last like week. for i would like for my son to apply he's 16 and uh, yeah. after the show i'd love to talk to you about With that Dad. but the other thing is for anyone listening not only finding information on how to participate but uh also how to help out because the work you do is so important and we live in these challenging times where there are many groups many health-based groups many social service groups that are that all have tremendous needs but you know we can't we can't forget different groups that you know like seeds of peace which does such great work and this is the 25th anniversary right right 25th this summer wow so, and, and not to interrupt yeah. you, but the biggest thing is with people wanting to be involved. The biggest thing is this is a, you know, this is a young people's organization. I'm the only person in Maine that has. I mean, when I say that, that really is responsible. But the 17 schools, all nine schools around Portland, that's Scarborough, Westbrook, South Portland, and in the six schools in Portland. Some of those schools have been involved for better part of 10 years, some longer. There's principals, superintendents for a couple of the schools. They're integral parts of this. Young people who become part of this organization, Lewiston, Edward Little, kids become school board members. But the most important thing to say to you is, is that, or say to your audience is, these young people come from all walks of life. You know, and that's what we're trying to do now. We have to stretch from the south. We're in the central. We went to Winslow, Waterville last year and and Haldale. We have to get north now. That costs money. We went to Presque Isle. Those people, they're trying to find the money to send their kids because that's what we have to do in Maine if we're going to be successful. We cannot keep up with this two-state discussion and the kids realize that they said there's things at the north that are unique to the north but the people in the south need to know that and the people in the south have to understand that the people in the north we're all mainers and the state is not going to get any better until it begins to have conversations those difficult conversations with each other they can't just keep being partisan about stuff right and 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 that's now I'm not speaking for me. I'm speaking from the from the standpoint of what the kids have said over the past three or four years. And again, some of these kids are at Bowdoin, Bates, UMO. The vice president of freshman class at UMO is from Westbrook. Okay, Bowdoin, vice president, his freshman class. He's from uh, from uh, Deering in Portland. But it's not just him. There's other kids that are doing stuff at their colleges. And representing Maine and saying, I do not want to leave Maine. I want to stay here and make it better. That's the other part that I'm 
really very proud of a lot of those kids. And you should be. We have Tim Wilson here, and we have a few more minutes. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk, WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. Shifting away for a minute from Seeds of Peace, how do you see today's political climate in the juxtaposition of the mission of Seeds of Peace? And do you think this is a cycle we're going through, or this is just something that we're, we're heading in a direction that's just going to be very challenging? I think the, the latter part of your, you know, your comments. Um, first of all, it's something we're going to be dealing with for a while. It's not going to go away. It's, um, you know, the story like you opened Pandora's box. We opened it now. We're going to have to deal with it. Right. Um, the things that I believed in personally, a lot of things in Maine that I work for for most of my adult life here, I've seen those ripped apart. I watch people create an image of what they think the Human Rights Commission is in this state and want an investigation, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I read a lot of this stuff, and I said, this is garbage, because I know I know the law and how the law was set up. Uh, I've also watched schools do things in this state that don't make sense to me. I'm not a, an advocate one way or the other about charter schools versus public schools versus whatever, private schools and that kind of thing. I think each of them have a place to fill, but I also think they need to sit at the table and discuss things with each other. They can't separate themselves out, but we've created that. People decided that they wanted to, I'll give you an example. When I'm in a meeting sometimes, I listen to people who've been here for five years or six years, and they go through their, Oh, I, I know Maine kind of stuff. Right, right. And I remember when, like I said, I had some people who really taught me about Maine when I first got here. I had a guy say to me, Tim, you've wintered well. <laughs> and that was after my third year in Dexter. You have to earn, to me, I'm old, old style. They trained me. You have to earn your place in Maine. That's how I look at it. You just can't come and in five years you're now in the legislature. Because many of those people have come here from some other places, and they want to change Maine to what they left. There's a lot of good stuff here. But the problem is what's occurred is people have come from other places, and there are people already here, and their prejudices they now wear and feed the beast. That's the first thing. Maine has a million, 300,000 people. Why are we being successful with some of our programs? With Seeds of Peace, it's because we can have a conversation with the mayor of a city or the chief of police or whatever. You go to other places, that doesn't work. That's a strength. We need to work on those kinds of things. See, my belief is sometimes, yeah, it's important to worry about what's past kittery. Right. But we need to make uh, the comment that kids always laugh when I say, take care of that square around you first before you stick your nose in somebody else's business. We need to take care of this square first, make this the best it can be, and that takes work. you got to put the work in. It isn't going to happen overnight. Getting back to the, the comment, race is an issue because of what is, you know, again, percentage point, 5% now in Maine. When I got here, it was like .02 or something. It, you know, there weren't any people here. But on the other hand, the people who have come from other places – vis-a-vis Africa or the Caribbean or whatever, 
there's a whole another kind of issue going on with even within their structure that affects someone like me. And then you have you have the majority culture who doesn't still doesn't understand some of the things that go on in hiring practices, how things are done. I mean, they're, they're uni- you cannot have, in certain cities today, educational pieces without having someone of color involved. You just can't do it anymore. You've got to figure out how to get somebody here or two or three people. Or even in this business you're in, I applaud Channel 8 down in Portland. If you go back and you look at their record when it comes to minority hiring, they blow the other guys out of the water, except uh, up in in in, uh, in in Bangor where they've there's been a young Asian woman for years in sports. But other than that, but see, I always said that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I, we we will have to do a complete show yeah. on that, but we've run out of time. Uh, Steve, I really appreciate it. Now, Tim, I really do, and people should look go to seedsofpeace.org to not only get information if you have a son or daughter or a grandson or granddaughter. And also, if you want to participate and help, um, great organization. I was uh, honored to be invited up there a few years ago. I certainly hope to go back and can't wait to have you come back on the show again sometime soon, Tim. I appreciate it. It's been really wonderful. Emily, thank you very much for for setting this up. Thank you for coming. You bet. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O. News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. I'm leaving in two days for South Africa and Dubai, so I may be trying to call in, but we will be uh, we'll be back on the air next week. Thank you.